We are in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning, and we are going to be talking about the persecution of, of God's people. I'm going to start off by sharing with you a story that I heard recently. I'm going to mention, by the way, one of our elders, a brother named Mark. Um, Mark is an elder here who, his job, he works with the persecuted church. So if there's a Mark I keep repeating, that's the Mark I'm talking, talking about. He shared with me this week after coming back from a trip to Africa about a particular sister, Saratu, 30-year-old Christian woman who lives in northern Nigeria. Two years ago, Boko Haram, who is a radical Islamist group, stormed her village and entered her home. And as is their practice... They executed her husband, and they pulled her four children from her arms, and then they abducted her. During all of this, they called for her to to deny her faith in Jesus, calling her to, to simply say that Jesus is not the Son of God, and that indeed Muhammad is the, the true prophet. But she would not. So they beat her, day in and day out for months. Eventually she became so worn down that she just wanted to to die. she She would not renounce her faith in Christ, but she just couldn't take the pain any longer. So she went on a hunger strike where she would not eat or drink. And it lasted nine days. She wouldn't die. And then one evening, another group came and attacked the Boko Haram group, and she found a way of escape into the bush, and she made through for several days to a displacement camp where today she lives, widowed, not knowing where her four children are or if they are even alive. She said to Mark that her her hope is that at least she knows that in heaven she will see them all again. Does her pain bother you? I'm not just talking about, can you see how that's a sad story, but, but, but does the, the plight of a persecuted Christian, does it move you? Does, does, it, does it do something to your heart, to your, to your affections? Does that, when you hear that, that suffering sister, does that, does that move you? Because God says that if you are a Christian, that it must he says that, that what is happening to Christians around the world who are suffering for their allegiance to Jesus, that it's to matter to Christians around the world, even if we don't know them by name. This is what we're going to be talking about as we come to Hebrews chapter 13. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you would go there, open up to Hebrews 13. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles provided for you. You can, um, you can open there to... Uh, to page 1009. We're just going to be looking at one verse this morning, Hebrews 13.3. As you're turning there, just want to remind you of the context of the book of Hebrews. The gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners, no matter where you've been or what you've done, there's a Savior who had come to rescue sinners like you and me, that He came and He died on the cross and He rose from the dead. 
And that anybody who will turn from their sin and believe upon Him, God will forgive their sins and reconcile them unto Himself. That good news had come likely to the city of of Rome, and it had gotten into a synagogue, a place where Jewish people were gathering together, and they heard that the Messiah had come and Jesus was it, and they, they turned and they trusted in Him. They believed in the promised one of the Old Testament, and there's great joy and great rejoicing, but then persecution came against them from their former friends and family who now called them to renounce Jesus and to come back to Judaism, but they would not. And because of this, there was, there was suffering and persecution. Slander, gossip, loss of job, disowned by family, rejected by friends. And this letter, the book of Hebrews, is written to that congregation to encourage them that Jesus is worth it. That no matter what you face, Jesus is worth suffering for and your following of Him. And that there's nowhere else to go because all of the promises of God are answered in Him. He fulfills every promise of the Old Testament. So continue to cling to Him. And chapter 12 ends with this this summary, kind of a therefore, in light of everything that you've heard about Jesus, let us be grateful. This is verse 28 of chapter 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In light of who Jesus is and what He has done, there is a call here for the church to worship Him in a way that's acceptable to God. And then chapter 13 spells out for us what does worship look like then? Well, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Love one another with brotherly, sisterly affection. We're a family. Verse 2, show hospitality to strangers. And then verse 3, our text for this morning. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. I'll read that again for us. Verse 3, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. Our big idea this morning is this. The remembering the persecuted church is an act of worship that glorifies Jesus because we sympathize with his suffering bride. I'll say that again. Remembering the persecuted church is an act of worship. So worship is not just singing. It's all of life, including the way that our heart is turned towards suffering brothers and sisters around the world. So remembering the persecuted church is an act of worship that glorifies Jesus because we sympathize with his suffering bride. Now, for my A-type personality, brothers and sisters, there's no outline this morning. So there's no 1.1.2 as we often have points here. But rather what we're going to do is we're just going to meditate on this, this verse this morning. We're going to just observe some of the things that are said here and think about them. And then we're going to, at the end, in the conclusion, think about a few applications of ways that we can worship more faithfully in this this particular call. So once again, verse 3. Remember those who are in prison 
as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. The word for remember here in the original language is in the present tense, which means it's, it's an ongoing action. It's also it's a command. It's in the imperative. We are commanded to have an ongoing remembering. There's to be a continual calling to mind. There's, there's a special interest here that's not supposed to lo- leave our, our sight. This, this remembering, there's different words for remembering uh, used throughout the Scriptures, really two of them. This one is not simply just a recalling to mind to be like, oh, okay, that's a good idea, but this is a remembering, a recalling that is always accompanied with a response. You remember in order to respond. Actually, the word in the Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the, of the Old Testament, it's the word used of God when He remembered Noah and then acted to bring him into the new world. It's the word when, when God remembered Israel in Egypt and delivered them then from all of their sufferings through the Red Sea. Now, God never forgets anything, but He does bring uh, to mind promises at particular times so that he will act on them in particular ways for the good of his people. But the fact is that we do forget, don't we? So this command is given to us to go on remembering, to keep on remembering the persecuted church in a way that produces response. It's supposed to move us. When we hear about Saratu or we hear about other brothers and sisters in Christ, is to, to move us to compassion, to prayer, to visits, if we're able, and to practical aid. And notice here again, it says, remember those who are in prison. So this verse has often been used for, for what? What might you guess? Prison ministry. Okay, we're all for prison ministry. We think it's great. Thank you for those of you who do prison ministry, who go in and share the gospel with people who are incarcerated. We think that's a wonderful ministry. That's not what he's talking about here, though. He's talking about people who are in jail for a particular reason. These are people who are imprisoned for their devotion to Jesus. And what you've got to understand is that this command is super important, particularly here in the context of the letter to where this, this is written to this group in Rome. Because Roman prisons are not like the prisons that we have in the United States of America today. They are not promised three square meals a day with a bed and a television. That is not what you have in these prisons. These prisons are, have horrific conditions. And the way that you survive while you're in prison is that people, friends and family, they come and visit you. And they bring you food, and they bring you drink, and they bring you clothing. And if you don't get it from friends and family, you're not going to make it. So he says here, remember them. Remember suffering brothers and sisters. Remember the ones who have seen that their sin offends God, and that they deserve judgment because of it. But then they've also seen God's mercy in Jesus who died in their place. Remember them who turned from their sin. Remember them who believed in Jesus as their Savior and swear allegiance to Him as their Lord. Remember them 
who publicly identified with Jesus and said, I'm with Him through baptism. Remember those who share about Him with others. Remember those who refuse to recant their love for Him. Remember those who would rather die than be silent about Him or disobey Him or dishonor Him. Remember those who will not fold to the pressure of renouncing Jesus or going back to Judaism in the book of Hebrews situation or back to cultural idols for so many other brothers and sisters throughout church history, including today. He says, these are Christians. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, remember them when they are in prison. And this kind of treatment of Christians is not something that should be a surprise. This is something that Jesus promised is going to happen. Persecution is coming, Jesus said. Jesus said, follow me, but when you do, know that trials will come. John 15, 18, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, says Jesus, they will also persecute you. So remember the reason that the world disdains Christians is because we love things that God loves only by his grace. And we hate the things that God hates only by his grace. The world doesn't like that because the world doesn't like light getting in and shining and exposing them for who they are. That's why I used to hate Christians. I hated them. I got on my nerves. First, I thought they were cheesy and annoying, which sometimes we are cheesy and we should cut that out. Sometimes we're annoying and we should cut that out as well. But really, the reason I despise Christians is because when I was around them, no matter how cheesy or goofy they were, there was something about them there was, there was light there that put, that put my darkness on blast, and I hated it. I hated the fact that I might be wrong, and who are you to tell me that? I was proud, and I hated the light of the gospel. Jesus says, don't be surprised about that. Paul says the same thing in 2 Timothy 3. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might be persecuted, but will be persecuted. Meaning, if you set your face to follow Jesus and to obey Him in everything you think, do, say, motives, and that affects how you work, how you're a neighbor, how you evangelize, if it affects everything in your life, it's going to grind against everybody who's swimming the other way. That's why Peter said to a suffering church, a group of churches in modern-day Turkey, in the first century, First Peter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So this is expected. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. Do you hear that? Rejoice because you're getting the same treatment that Jesus got because you're with Him. That you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Meaning, this show will not go on forever. There's a day Jesus is coming back, and we want to be with Him, and that's our aim, and that's why we continue to follow Him no matter what the cost even now. So we follow Jesus, but following Jesus is costly. 
So this morning, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really thankful that you're here. We think there's really no better place on the planet for you to be than in a, God, in a church where you're going to hear about Jesus. But we want you to know we are not promising you that if you give your life to Christ today, if you surrender, if you repent of your sin and believe upon Him, we are not promising you that you're going to get a Mercedes or that you're going to get, you know, everything's going to turn out great all of a sudden. You may get a Mercedes. Things may turn out great for you. But what you've got to know is this, that if you follow the shepherd, there will be valley of the shadow of death, and there will be suffering for following after him. When you read through the scriptures and you look around church history and in our world today, you see there's, there's social pressure. Christians often are slandered. Oftentimes the media will misrepresent them. You just find that one wacky Christian who's saying all the stuff you don't want him to. Let's put him on TV. For some of you, and you know this personally, you have family who has disowned you. That because you went into the waters of baptism, they said, you will never come in my house again. That happens. There are friends who will forsake you. There are jobs who will fire you. Some of us will face that. Some of us have faced that. There will be companies who will not hire you if you're a Christian. Then there's also political pressures. There's laws that limit religious freedoms in various countries, including our own. Then there's systematized oppression. For instance, in in Syria, where there's a system put in place under Sharia law that aims to either kill Christians, convert Christians, or tax them to where they can't do anything. Or there's imprisonment, like in North Korea. There's concentration camps, labor camps. And then there's places like Saudi Arabia, where it is illegal to convert to Christianity, and if you do, you will be hanged or beheaded. Following Jesus is costly. I want to share with you another story about a man from Eritrea. He came to Christ in his early 20s, and uh, Eritrea is a a communist country, so it's it's in Africa, but it's, it's not Muslim. Rather, it's nicknamed the the North Korea of of Africa. And if you follow any of the religions outside, the religions allowed by the state and really controlled by the state, so they have certain groups of of Christians who are allowed to gather, but all the messages are filtered through the government, so it's not really a church where a believer would want to go. But if you go to any gathering outside of that, you're viewed as a spy from the West, and it is costly. Well, this guy, who remained unnamed, um, he became a Christian. He heard the gospel. He repented. He believed. He began following Jesus. And he did what, Je- what Christians do. Started telling other people about Jesus. And he went from town to town sharing the gospel. Well, people were terrified. People were terrified to, to be associated with them. Because if so, then there's, there's guilt by association. So he was turned in and he was arrested. And he was put in prison. Let me explain to you this prison that he was put into. A metal freight box with 120 other people. No room to lie down. Buried in the desert with only about six inches above ground. So sunlight, daylight is minimal. During the day, you have desert temperatures. Very hot, to say the least. And in the night, you have sub-zero desert temperatures. 
So you're either sweating to death or freezing to death, nowhere to lie down, nowhere to go to the restroom. There's you and 120 other people in there. Horrific conditions. The problem is that he starts sharing the gospel with everybody in there. And people start getting converted. They start believing in Christ. So they, they take him out. And they beat him. They beat him on his feet with plastic rods. Every day. For months. So that he would recant. Of his allegiance to Jesus. But he would not. Then they put him in solitary confinement doing that. And then, every day his job would be to be woken in the morning with a beating on his feet until he, he could barely stand, and then a 100-pound rucksack would be put on his back, and his job was to walk back and forth across the field. You stop, you get beaten. You go too slow, you get beaten. At the end of the day, you get a beaten for bed, and then you wake up and you do it in the morning until you renounce Jesus. At times, he would be tied up with his, his elbows touching. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I'm not flexible anyway, but like, I, there's, you can't imagine elbows touching tied like that. Once he was beaten so badly that he was left for dead, and they didn't even lock the door and just left. By the grace of God, he lived and he escaped. And eventually made it to Ethiopia where Mark... Our elder spoke with him two weeks ago as he lives in a refugee camp along with 12,000 other people. Hebrews 13.3 tells us to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. That means is think about what it would be like for you to be in there with Him. What it like to be locked in that box with Him? Your elbows tied. What, what would that be like? He says, he says it here, as though in prison with them. What would it be like to share their chains? To feel the hunger that they feel for days on end? Not being able to know whether you can trust the food that even comes in. Think about the fear that would be on them. Think about if you were in prison like that. What would you want other people to be doing for you? Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve, whatever you wish others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What's the whole Old Testament teach? Have a compassionate love for others to where you love and care about others in the same way that you would want someone to love and care about you. So how does that, the golden rule, the the second part of the great commandment, how would that apply to those who are in prison? It says, remember them. It says also here, to to remember, and this is the, the command carries on to the second phrase, those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So sympathize with those who are in prison, but also empathize with those who are mistreated. The word there, mistreated, is again in the present tense. Those who are right now, while we sit in here, the 4th of July, grilling burgers, and being thankful for our freedoms, which praise God for freedoms that many in our country experience right now. Praise God for that. 
But right now, not everybody's got that. And particularly, not all Christians have that around the world. Right now, while we're in here, worried about whether these seats are too hard, or whether the temperature's right, or whether we're going to get out in time, right now, people are being mocked because they're Christians. Right now, people are being slandered. Words are being spread around, around brothers or sisters in Christ because of their allegiance to Jesus. Right now, Christians are being humiliated, oppressed, attacked, raped, beaten, tortured, hunted. Right now, right now, that's happening. This is not just, this used to happen. This is now, today. Remember those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So why ought we remember them? Because when another Christian suffers, it's not just sad story on the news. Christians have compassion for all people we ought. Love your neighbors yourself. That is true. But there's, there's a particular care that Christians are to have for fellow Christians. So when we hear about the suffering, sufferings of Suratu or whomever it may be, it's not just news, it's family news. It's family. Since you are also in the body. Now, there's discussion on what that means, also in the body. It could mean, since you know what it's like to be a human, and you've suffered before, when others are suffering, know what the physical pain of suffering is like, and have compassion. I think that's totally true. It seems, though, the aim here is is more about because you're in the body of Christ. I want to take just a moment here to meditate on this because this is really important to understand how being in the body of Christ produces a compassion for others who are in the body of Christ. So if you've got your Bible open, keep your finger in Hebrews. We'll be back there. Go to Acts, which is to your left. So if you hit the Gospels or the Old Testament, you've gone too far. Acts chapter 9. Josh Hart did a great job teaching this this morning in the Acts class. 9.30 hour. Acts chapter 9. I'm going to mention a guy named Saul here, later to become known as the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul used to be a terrorist. Saul used to hunt down Christians like ISIS people do today. That's what he used to do, except he did it for Judaism. Zealous to defend the God of the Old Testament, not understanding that's the same God of the New Testament who sent his son to die for sinners like him. Look at Acts 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats, what came out of his mouth was threats against Christians, and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So a disciple is a Christian, it's the same thing. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, those who were Christians were called the way, because they followed the one who says that he's the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he wants permission from the high priest to hunt down Christians, lock them up, and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now Saul is going to end up getting converted and God's going to use him greatly 
read Acts later on today. But what I want us to notice here is this. Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus has already ascended. Some two months earlier, he's already ascended. He's in heaven. And he says, you're persecuting me. How is that the case? The the case is because when the body is beaten on earth, the head feels it in heaven. When the bride is mistreated on earth, the groom is moved in heaven. When the church is persecuted on earth, King Jesus is poised to act from heaven. Jesus loves the church. And when we suffer, He hears our sufferings. He feels our pain. He responds to our sufferings. This is instructive for us because when when you become a Christian, we are all of a sudden, by the power of the Holy Spirit, united to Jesus. We are in Christ is the language that's used throughout the New Testament. If you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God has brought you into Christ. You are covered by His righteousness. You are given union with Him to where now you receive spiritual life from Jesus. That's why you're born again. You have new life that comes from God through the Holy Spirit in Christ. Now when this happens, so so by the way, that is why sin bothers you if you're a Christian. It's because God the Spirit dwells in you. You're united with Jesus. So when you do something that God hates, it grieves you if you're a Christian. It's another sermon for another day, but it What matters to God now matters to us because we're in Christ. We're united to Him because we are His body. And this is one of the reasons right here that the author of Hebrews says, back in Hebrews chapter 13, this is one of the reasons God says we all care about Christian persecution because you are in the body. You're part of those who are united to Jesus. We're not just united to Jesus, just like me and Jesus. It's us and Jesus together as the church, the body. Listen to this from 1 Corinthians 12, 24. There must be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. So what that means is there's no out of sight, out of mind for the family of God. But rather, because we're united with Christ, we're united with other brothers and sisters. Even if they're from countries you can't pronounce and you don't know anything about them, what happens to them, Jesus says, ought matter to us because it matters to God. Now, evidently, the, he- the church here in, in Hebrews, um, they had had a track record of remembering those who were in prison well. Look back at chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews 10. Look at verse 32. He's spurring them on to faithfulness, and he says, Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So they, the people who are free, they had been through some sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Meaning, you know, Nathan Hartley gets drug out for being a Christian down to, time, down to the, you know, out in the parking lot, and they say, Is there anybody else who believes what he w- believes? Well, what Christians do is we get up and say we're with him because we're with him. So that had happened here. 
He said, for you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So the Christians who are suffering, they know that they have a treasure laid up before them. And because of that, anything that they have here is just bonus. And that they are willing to lose that in order to be faithful to Jesus. But when our brothers and sisters suffer for that, it must matter to us. Now a couple questions I want us to reflect on before we get into some application for us here. The first is the question that anybody who I I think really thinks about this probably asks at some point is why would God allow his people to suffer persecution? I mean, of all the strange things, why would would God do that? Why, Why wouldn't it seem like the prosperity gospel lies to us about that That if you would come to Christ, that everything's going to be great. You're never going to get sick. You're never going to have a bounce check again. Your light bill will never be too much again. You're never going to have to worry about whatever kind of untimely thing because God's just going to put this little force field around you and it's going to be you and Jesus shining for the world so that everybody sees, oh wow, to be a Christian means life's great. That seems like, that's why it makes so many people turn from truth to go after it. Well, there's many mysterious reasons why God allows and ordains suffering, many of which we will never know on this side. I think we have to be able to to rest in that as Christians. But there are some reasons, I think, that are are pretty evident in in His Word. One is that God uses suffering to, to purify His church. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary... You have been grieved by various trials. So there's times that trials are necessary. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that God allows suffering and persecution is because he often uses it to help us to not hold on to the world so much. Because when ISIS is chasing you, your 65-inch TV just doesn't matter anymore. It just doesn't matter if somebody dinged your minivan and you're like, oh my gosh, my minivan. Like it doesn't, that stuff just doesn't matter anymore. The stuff that we get all fired up about, whether I've got the new iPhone or not, like that stuff is just, it's just dumb. Like really, when you think about it in light of big stuff. And the Lord very often uses suffering and trials and persecution to give us a good dose of sobriety to where we get an eternal perspective on things. And it helps us to say, you know what? Take all of it as long as I get Him. It's actually really good for us. I'm not saying we should always just be like, oh, then give us, give us suffering. But I do think it means that we should, not, we should not be so quick to call God cruel when he brings it. He is the wise physician who knows what medicine is best for the health of our souls. Let's not resist him. 
Because oftentimes mercy and persecution, or persecution and suffering may actually be mercy. Another reason of why would God allow his people to suffer persecution is, is this. That God appears to use persecution to make the church grow. In, 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 in maturity, which we just talked about, but also in, in sheer conversions and numbers. Because as the church remains faithful, her light shines brighter to the world. To where when you get no perks, like you don't get like a 15% off because you're a Christian somewhere, when you lose all the perks and you're still saying, oh, he's worth it. He's better than anything. Take it all. That's, as long as I got him, that makes Jesus look big and good. And it makes him look as he is, which is what it means to glorify God. You show that he's worth it. He's worthy. His glory is more precious than anything else. And that is compelling to non-Christians who are seeking a reason to live. In 197 AD, Tertullian, who was an early church leader, said to a Roman governor over the province that he was in, where there was a bit of persecution that was going on, he said this to him. This is kind of a famous, famous line. He said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. Your injustice is proof that we're innocent. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. The blood of Christians is seed. He's saying when Christians' blood is shed, when they die, when they're persecuted, God seems to use that to make the church grow. Now, is that just a great quote by Tertullian? No. It's true. When you look... If you, if you look in Acts, just listen to this. This is from Acts chapter 5. Religious leaders have told the apostles not to speak in the name of Jesus. They did it because they're, they're going to do it, because they, they want to obey him. They called in the apostles, Acts chapter 5, verse 40. And they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And he let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They're looking at each other like, we got to get beat for Jesus. That's awesome. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. That's the last verse in chapter 5. The first verse in chapter 6 says this. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, They're getting beat and flogged and mocked and slandered, and all it's doing is producing zeal in them all the more. So they're going to go like, nah, we're we're preaching it. And people are seeing it and are compelled and are converted. And then after chapter 6, you've got this guy named Stephen, who was a deacon, who was a good preaching deacon, got up and gave one of the best sermons and summaries of the Old Testament in chapter 7. So if you want to know the Old Testament about, Acts 7 is a great summary. And at the end, all the religious leaders, they get mad because they're like, I think he's talking about us. Are you saying we killed Jesus? And he's saying, I did. I said you did it. And so they stone him to death. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of his execution, Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then verse 4. Now those who were scattered 
went about preaching the word. It's like God has beaten the devil with his own stick. The devil's like, I'm going to ravage the church and I'm going to consume them. Well, he uses that attack to spread them out everywhere. They're like weeds in the yard. You get one of those weeds and then it does that. And then next thing you know, you've got dandelions everywhere. You're like, oh, well, that's what's happening with Christians. They're getting lit up and boom. They go everywhere and the gospel's spreading like wildfire. And that's what happens when you read the book of Acts. It's just that all the way through to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus commanded. God uses persecution to purify his church and to further the church. Now, am I saying that persecution is a good thing? No, it's not. Brothers and sisters being afflicted in such horrific ways. Brothers and sisters being marched out 21 in line and being called to knelt and lose their head on a beach and used as terrorist propaganda. It's not good. That's evil. It's evil. And God will punish the persecutors if they do not repent. But you see, Christians endure suffering by knowing, knowing the promises of God. That those... Though there is evil that comes against his people, and though that's not good, there is a God who works all things together for the good. We read that this morning, Merck read it this morning, Romans 8, 28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't say all things are good, because not all things are good. But there's a God who's sovereign over all things, who can work all things, good and evil, together for his glory and for the good of his people ultimately. That's the God of the Bible. God of the Bible never says, "Uh uh-oh, what are we going to do? He is in control at all times and all situations. He rules the universe. He even oversees the suffering of his people. There's a sister, I I won't share her name for her safety. She grew up in Iraq. And she grew up, as most people in Iraq would, believing the Quran was the word of God, of Allah, believing that Allah was the one true God, believing that Muhammad was his prophet. But her whole life, seeing how it was lived out, she felt no peace. And along the way, God brought people into her life to, to point her toward, toward Christ. Well, in recent years, one day she was sitting watching the news and she saw the, the ISIS video that I referenced a moment ago of the 21 Coptic Christians who were taken out in orange jumpsuits and called to kneel and who were beheaded on a beach by ISIS soldiers, militants. And she said that when she watched it, she wondered why did they have such peace? What what would give them such peace at such a moment when there ought be no peace? And then days later when she read the reports of the family's response 
who invited the ISIS soldiers into their homes so they could share about the gospel of Jesus. How would people find strength and mercy to be able to forgive someone who did something horrific like that to a beloved one? And to put her on a quest and One of our dear friends had the opportunity to share the gospel with her. She came to Wednesday night Bible studies here for a little while. And two Sundays ago, I think, or last Sunday, two Sundays ago, she was baptized at a church right down the road at a place that faithfully preaches the gospel at risk of her life. Because she saw the ISIS videos And God used that to make her say, where can you find such peace? You find that peace in a person and his name is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who laid down his life even for terrorists like Saul or like those ISIS executioners that they would but repent and, and believe. You see, we serve a God who can do that. Who can take something so evil and use it for good. In fact, if God can use the worst evil that's ever happened, that the creation would torture to death the Son of God, the Creator, and nail Him to a cross. If, they can, if God can use that as the greatest, the greatest evil that's ever happened for the greatest good that we would ever know, that we could be forgiven of our sins because He rose from the dead and now extends forgiveness to all who will repent, How much more could he be sovereign over the sufferings of our brothers and sisters? I want to give us a word of caution here. We must be careful about how we think about persecution in America. I've I've heard it said by well-meaning people that, you know, I I hope we get a good dose of persecution because that's what we need around here. I want to say that's likely motivated by a good desire to see hypocrisy stamped out, and to see revival take place. But I want to rest, I want to to promise you that that isn't what our Syrian and Iraqi and Afghani brothers and sisters are saying under the thumb of ISIS right now. That's not what our Nigerian brothers and sisters who are being crushed by Boko Haram right now are saying. That's not what our Kenyan brothers and sisters are saying who are being afflicted by al-Shabaab. And that's not what our northern Korean brothers and sisters who are being starved to death under a communist regime are saying. If the Lord sees fit to bring persecution, the Lord is wise and he knows what is best. I just want to to encourage you not to say things like that. Though they may be well intended, I think it's... And I mean this kindly, and I'm happy to talk with you about it later if you'd like. But I think it shows some ignorance of what it means to really suffer for the gospel. This is not theory. This is happening right now to brothers and sisters all over the world. Right now. I think for us, when we think about persecution, we should be thankful that God, for some peculiar reason, has decided to give such a stay of mercy here in the United States. I mean, think about it. If God gave us what we deserved, if God was fair to us, 
I mean, he would have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. God is not treating America fairly or giving her what she deserves. He is being merciful and giving liberty and freedom. Though I realize not everybody in this country experiences freedom in the same way. And we want to we have discussions about that and how we can move forward and help, help that to be the case. But we should pray the prayer of 1 Timothy 2. It says this, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and for those who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all goodness and dignity. So a brother who's, being, who's in prison, who's being under constant persecution, he says this is how we ought to pray, that God would raise up governing leaders who would give us religious freedom so that we can just be left alone and proclaim the gospel with freedom. Brothers and sisters, however long you and I have freedom, we will be called to give an account for how we use it. It is no light thing to have the freedom that this country has had in the ways that we have had it for so long. May we be good stewards because there is a day coming when much is required from those to whom much is given. One more question before I give us three little applications here. Why would God include this command to remember the persecuted? Why why do you think God would give this this command? Well, a few reasons. First, for the original hearers, there is, if if you're going to go visit brothers and sisters who are in prison for the gospel, and you're bringing them supplies, you're outed as a Christian. So what do you feel potentially? Fear? Shame? That is a a potential reason that this was given is to help, help them to not be fearful and shameful of associating with them. I think for, for people like us, it might be more maybe ignorance. Some Some would consider Christian persecution a thing of the past. That's what happened to the early church. I think the more tuned in we are to the news, this is becoming increasingly less possible, especially with the rise of ISIS and the stories that are coming out of that. I think another reason that God would give this command to remember the persecuted is because this is particularly, I think, for us here in America. I mean, other places deal with it, but we have this propensity to want to avoid reality. I think that's why many of us, when we come home after a long, hard day, you pop open some, some, whatever, refreshing cold beverage, and then you sit down and you watch TV and you just zone out and you just binge on Netflix. It's because we live in a hard world. And we just want some kind of escape from reality. We want to think about easy things. That's why, I mean, you look at our media, we make fun of everything. Because seriousness scares us. Because we're not grown up. We don't know how to deal with it. We pretend that weighty stories are not there, oftentimes. So a word to the children here. Young people. Video games, TV, just living for pleasure. 
I just want to encourage you. There's, there's a place for video games. I'm not saying we're going to have a burn fest for, for all your Xboxes later. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I do want to say this. Those things and growing up on those things all the time, where that's what's in front of you all the time, it will not help you obey God in this command. It removes you from reality rather than help you prepare for it and face it and be able to help others prepare for it. Parents, how are you helping your children to face the realities of the suffering in our world? I know there needs to be wisdom in parenting with how much to expose at what times and all those kinds of things, but hiding them from the plight of suffering Christians does not help. The elders are here to help you think through how we might be able to do this all the better. Another reason that we might uh, need this command is because of how individualistic we are. Here in the West, we often don't think about how other people are connected to us. This hyper-individualism, we just think, well, does that affect me? If not, okay. But Hebrews 13.3 aims at correcting this by reminding us that we are united with those who are suffering. Because we're part of the body, it's a family. Which plays into the last little reason I might give here for the, the reason for this remembering is just our selfishness. That if we aren't in it, we don't, we don't care very often. We need to be taught how to care and to be apathetic toward others. And I want to say one of the best ways that you can learn to be sympathetic for, for suffering Christians on the other side of the world is to grow in compassion for Christians who are suffering on the other end of your pew. Asking God to help you to care about the people that are around you. If you're a member of this church, what that means is you've committed before God and before others to helping each other to look to Jesus and endure suffering no matter what the cost. To encourage each other day by day as long as it's called today, just like Hebrews calls us to do. The local church, I think, is actually one of the best places to learn to put selfishness to death so that you're able to serve and love God in ways that bring Him glory. Three final brief applications. Number one, remember the persecuted church. Remember them by learning about their suffering. There's all sorts of publications out there. You've got persecution.org, persecution.net. Both of them are, are good resources. You can ask Mark Butman, who's one of our elders. He would love to talk with you about this. Take him out to lunch. Have him get a group of you, get your community group together. Ask Mark to come on over and tell you about what's going on in the world. He often shares about uh, his trips when he comes back from them on Wednesday nights. If he's able to get back from the place he's preaching this morning, he'll be here tonight and share some stories. Read old, older stories of persecution, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Another excellent book that's come out recently, Early Christian Martyr Stories. Early Christian Martyr Stories by Brian Lifton. And then also read biographies about suffering saints. So remember them by learning about their suffering. Remember them by praying on their behalf, both personal prayer and corporate prayer. So personal prayer, like on Twitter, I follow certain news things that give me news about persecuted uh, persecuted Christians around the world. On my phone, I don't have many apps, but one of them I have is the weather. And one of the places that I have on there is the capital of North Korea. So that very often I'll just flick through and see what it's like, particularly in the wintertime, for those who have no heat or in concentration camps, 
And I'll pause and pray. This is why during corporate prayer, during the pastoral prayer, Merck even did it this morning, prayed for Christians. This is why in the evening service, we pray through Operation World and talk about the suffering of Christians. And while you're praying for Christians, pray for them to remain faithful in the midst of, of suffering. Oftentimes when persecuted Christians are asked, what, do you, what should we pray for? The main thing is pray for us to remain faithful no matter what it costs us. Also remember to be praying for their, their conversion of their captors. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as you're remembering the persecuted church, learn about them, pray for them, pray for their captors to be converted. Remember them also by relieving their suffering. Here's a way to partner with agencies. Mark Butman, again, can point you in the direction of how that can happen. You can write your congressman about particular cases. You can visit certain places. Oftentimes the best way to do this, so many of the, the workers that we partner with around the world are in difficult places, and oftentimes um, they can be encouraged uh, by visits. I'd be happy to talk with you about that if you're a member here. You can also write letters of encouragement to suffering families, and Mark Butman, again, can help get those to them. It should be a great thing, by the way, parents, to have children write letters to the suffering uh, Christians around the world. One other thing I just want to say about the remembering persecuted church is that this is not supposed to stir fear in us uh, before the oppressors, but rather it's to stir faith and fear in God. It was Jesus who said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Pray that persecuted brothers and sisters would have a right view of God. Secondly, Reflect on your own devotion to Jesus. Reflect on your own devotion to Jesus. I, I mean, I know many times when I hear stories about brothers and sisters who are suffering, it is, it's weighty and it moves me to consider my own life. It ought to bring a sober introspection. So I would ask you, is, is your following of Jesus, is it warranting persecution? And if, if, you're never, if you are never suffering any kind of persecution... I think I would ask myself why. Tim Keller said it this way, the gospel attracts and repels. If you're always persecuted, you're probably a jerk. If you're never persecuted, you're probably a coward. I think hearing stories like this all cause us to say, Lord, what might be my temptation? How does what you love affect how you live? And if your love for Jesus is supreme, it ought move us. I tell you, I read biographies, not as much as I'd like to, but I love reading the stories of faithful saints. I'm going to give away a copy of one tonight, probably my favorite, John Patton, who was uh, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands where cannibals were always trying to kill him and eat him. It's a great story. So you should come and fight over that copy tonight. It's a, great, it's a great story. But just reading them and hearing his story, it moves me to want to be faithful to Jesus all the more. One of the ways God builds us up is with one another in examples. Lots of other things I can give you in an email. If you want it, I'm going to cut. And then thirdly and finally, rejoice that Jesus wins. Rejoice that Jesus wins. 
Psalm 119, 84 said, How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? In Revelation chapter 6, we get a, a picture of Christians who have died and have gone on to glory and are there in the presence of the Lord. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves have been. Did you hear that? God has a certain number of His children who will be killed through persecution. God rules everything. And what that does is it all brings us comfort and help us to know that, that He rules and reigns and we can trust Him. And then one day He's coming back. Listen to this from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. So as you endure suffering and persecution, and as you remember those who are enduring suffering and persecution, what we keep before us as Christians is our eyes on the horizon, knowing that one day soon the Lord Jesus is going to return and He is going to execute justice on all those who afflict His people. And what that does is it gives us strength and emboldens us to be faithful no matter what the cost. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what tomorrow or the days or the years ahead hold. I trust that it will continue to only be a bumpy ride for Christians. But we have a God who is worthy, no matter what the cost is. So we must be a church that remembers those who are suffering now and is ready to help one another when our time for suffering may come. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come and we pray and say thank you. Thank you that Jesus is the resurrected and soon returning Lord. And that in him we have much reason to take heart. And God, we pray that you would move us to be a people who are concerned and who remember with great sympathy and affection our brothers and sisters who are suffering all over the world. God, we pray even right now right now, that by some miraculous way you might provide food, or maybe a bird, something. Send food to those who are being starved. God, might you, might you make a door to a jail cell just open as you've done so many times before. Might you do that even now for some to escape? Pray even now, God, for those who have afflicted your people that they might be haunted by the prayers of those that they put to death on their behalf. And they would be moved to seek the peace of our sister who was recently baptized. God, we pray for our sister, Suratsu, whom we don't know, but you do. And one day we will stand next to her in glory. We pray that you might strengthen her. 
pray that if her children are alive, that you might reunite them. And God, we pray for help. And we pray for hope for the suffering church abroad until the Son returns. Send him soon. In the name of Jesus.